2: Hello, welcome back to the New Books Network African-American Studies podcast. Today, I will talk with sociologist Dr. Sean Drake, who is the author of Academic Apartheid, Race and the Criminalization of Failure in an American Suburb. Um, I'm your host, Mikhail Carter. Uh, Dr. Sean Drake, it is great to have you on. Thanks for speaking with me today.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
2: I am so glad that you're here. So I want to really talk to you about your amazing work. Um, So one thing that really drew me to your book was the title, uh, Academic Apartheid. And so um, I have experience in education. And so um, it was a Title I school, predominantly Black student body. And so I really was interested in um, your title, along with like, the American suburb and pretty much the opposite of my teaching experience. So could you please talk to the audience about your title and pretty much what were you getting at?
1: Yeah, um, so the title was a process that took, uh, you know, a couple of years to kind of settle on. Um, but essentially, I think for a title, um I think one thing I did, you know, kind of when I was in school and, and new books would, uh, you know, be assigned in a class or I would, you know, check something out, maybe cr- creating my own summer reading list, I always would pay attention to the titles. You know, the title um, is what would sort of catch catch my attention. Um, if the title was interesting, then I w- was more likely to, you know, maybe want to see what, what the book was about or, or, or read further. So I wanted a title that, um, would be somewhat kind of uh uh, you know that that would be you know a little bit provocative that would grab people's attention but at the same time would be uh truthful to the book and to the work um that would be accurate and an accurate representation of what the book uh is is about and so you know i thought about different titles um and really what I was kind of stick, sticking on was the word apartheid and whether that word was an appropriate word to use in this context and for the data that I had uh, for, for the book. Um, you know, academic apartheid had a nice ring to it, but was it really apartheid, you know, what I was describing? And, you know, apartheid is really a process of, of, uh, of segregation and, uh, and and social isolation. That's very um, that's very vivid. That's very stark. That's almost absolute. Um, sort of like a like a Jim Crow situation. Uh, you know, these are these are kind of synonymous things. And the situation that I describe in the book is one in which students are segregated to two separate schools that are very different in many, many ways, the physical space of the schools, the curriculum, the the, the sort of the racial and socioeconomic composition of the student body, the privileges that students have, uh, the the relationship between police and the institution and other law enforcement officials, um, the post-secondary opportunities that graduates have. And so it struck me that the experiences um, and the kind of place Places and spaces were so starkly different, you know, that that the word apartheid was was in fact appropriate, uh, especially when taking into account the kind of racial and socioeconomic uh, di- uh, disparity between the between the two schools uh, that I that I detail in the book. Um, and then you know, it's a book about schools and about academics, and so academic made sense. And then I, I kind of put those those two words together. But I certainly you know went through several titles and at one point I had settled on a different title and I was talking to somebody and they said, no, don't do that. So, so yeah, that was the, that was a title that I had. And then it was just about making sure that the word apartheid really fit, um, what I'm describing in the, in the book.
2: For sure. And it was a, it's a very fitting title. Um, I do agree. And so you spoke about like the experiences of students in your book. And so, I would like to talk to you um, briefly about your own personal experiences. Um, You mentioned at the opening of the book, you talked about growing up in San Francisco um, in your childhood. So how did your early experiences help to influence your research?
1: Yeah, thank you so much for the question. Um, Because my childhood experiences and kind of some of my, you know, uh, experiences in young adulthood, uh, you know, had a, profound, uh, influence, you know, kind of on my life and certainly on this, on this book. Um, I grew up in, in San Francisco, um, and San Francisco is an interesting place. You know, it's a very, uh, you know, it's a progressive city. It's very liberal. Uh, it's very diverse in terms of, you know, people of all backgrounds living there, but at the same time, it has... Um, you know it has the, the you know elements of, of of income inequality that are really striking. It has elements of residential racial segregation that are really striking. Um, it has kind of a stratified public ed- education system where some schools are considered to be really good and others are considered to be not so good and the schools that are considered to be not so good tend to have more black and brown students in them and so it and so even though um, you know, it's one of the more progressive major cities in the country, uh, you know, out on the, you know, in, in, obviously in the, in, the, in the West Coast and that region and all of that. And it's sort of known for that. It still has many of these elements of inequality and disparity that you would see in cities across the country. And that was something that I realized as a, as a young age. You know, I was fortunate to attend schools where I had plenty of resources uh, the schools that were well funded, schools where I had lots of opportunities um, to pursue the things that I wanted to, um, you know, to sort of brighten brighten my future and give me give me that that chance. And one thing I noticed when I was probably sometime in middle school, I really started to notice that a lot of um, um, uh, you know people that looked like me, that looked like I did did not have those opportunities. And typically, those are my friends and family outside of school. You know, I was one of always one of very few black or brown students at any school that I that I attended. But then on, you know, like on weekends when I would hang out with, um, you know, my friends and family, uh, you know, I would see that they often didn't have the same opportunity. And those would be people who looked like like me. And so I wondered why, you know, why is it that schools with all the with all the black and brown students don't have. You know, they 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 just they didn't have the facilities that my school had. They didn't have the um, you know the two story library that my school had. They didn't have the new gym, and they didn't have they didn't have all of these things. They didn't have the outdoor education program. They didn't have um, all of these you know enrichment activities. Why was that? That didn't seem fair to me. Um, And so I think that was something that really that really stuck with me, and it really seemed like you know there were these students who. you know, I sort of shared these experiences with of sort of, you know, being kind of a person of color in America who were disadvantaged through no fault of their own. You know, it wasn't their fault that they lived where they lived that they went to the school where they went to. Um, And, and that really made a big impression on me. That was something that really stuck with me. Uh, And as I got, as I, you know, got further along in school and got more into the literature in my psychology and my sociology classes, I saw that there just wasn't, students like me weren't really represented in the literature very much. You know, students who were maybe the only black kid in their class or the only black, brown student in their class or one of very few in their grade level. You know, we weren't really in the narrative um, when we were talking about kind of racial inequality and segregation and disparity in schools. And so I wanted to sort of, you know, fill, fill, those, fill those gaps in some ways. Um, there were also things that happened to me, you know, things that teachers would say to me or my peers would say to me about, about my accomplishments, um, you know, that sort of rubbed me the wrong way when I was a kid, but I didn't really know how to deal with them or what it meant. And so those were things that, you know, I had, you know, research questions about and, and um, you know, and, and was sort of able to pursue and, and address more in this in this book. So in some ways, this book is a chance for me to explore kind of who I was in my childhood, and some of that sort of inequality. You know, inequality that's happening, um, you know, in, in, in different spaces beyond the sort of, um, you know, beyond, you know, what was kind of been been represented most often in the, in the literature up to this point.
2: For sure. Thank you for that. And so I really love um, what you said there as far as, and then, so this project is like a, a personal piece for you, Right. Um, because it's yeah. like, you, yeah, for sure, no,
1: absolutely. It's very personal, and I think, um, you know, I think as a as a researcher, I think that's, uh, you know, like I encourage my students to lean into who they are as people. You know, there's a there's a saying we have in ethnography, which is a, as you know as a research method, which is just to start where you are. Um, which means that you can, that can mean in terms of you know where you're doing your investigation, but it also it just means in terms of you know, who you are as a person, the things that you care about, and I think, um, you know, I think that 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 sometimes research can be the most impactful, the most interesting when it's something that 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 we do that we do care about, um, and we sort of there is that passion, uh, you know, in the in the work. And so for me, certainly, you know, I, I I like to ask questions about, investigate things that are things that that I that I care about outside of of a research context. I care about these things, um, you know, personally as well.
2: Right, I love that. And so speaking of
1: ethnography,
2: um please like so we know that this book um is an ethnographic study right and you're conducting this ethnographic fieldwork um and so I'm not going to lie I had to go to Google and type in you know what is ethnography so if you could please explain um tell us what ethnography agno- excuse me okay Ethno- ethnographic
1: do not judge me ethnographic fieldwork
2: is and just talk to us about your sources
1: yes so, um, um, ethnography and ethnographic fieldwork are, you know, that's something that I came to relatively, relatively late. Um, you know, when actually when I started graduate school, I didn't know what what it what it was. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm glad that I discovered it um, sometime along the way because it is a a, a research method, a method of data collection and analysis. Uh, it's widely practiced in anthropology, but also in sociology and in other social science disciplines as well. Um, and uh, it is uh, essentially the, the systematic study of culture, typically the culture of a place or a community um, and the people who live there. And as ethnographers, what we try to do is we try to um, you know, apprehend and render people's lived experiences um, the things that they do in their lives, how they make it through their days, how they make meaning of the things that, that happened, um, how they perceive different things that go on and how they make decisions based upon kind of the, the frame through which they view uh, uh, events and things that, that happen in, in their lives. And those are very context dependent. So, for example, the same event in, you know, neighbor, that happens in neighborhood A might not mean the same thing as if it happens in neighborhood B. And so that's something that as ethnographers, we try to understand and how people make meaning of their experiences and then how they act on, on, on those perceptions. And, uh, and so that means as a method that we have to spend a lot of time with people and in communities, getting to know them, building relationships, hanging out. Uh, People watching, you know, taking field notes. Um, We also interview people at length. We have informal conversations with people. Um, Sometimes if we want to understand a neighborhood, we rent an apartment in the neighborhood so that we can really immerse ourselves. So it's a very immersive method in that way. And it typically takes months, if not years, to collect all of the data necessary to complete an ethnographic project. Uh, and we call this our, our field work. So we go out into the field and we collect our our data. Um, and so it's a time-intensive process. We have to code our data, meaning we have to like, attach labels to our notes based on different themes and patterns that we see. We do the same thing with our interviews, which we... Uh, typically, record if we can, and then transcribe the interviews. So it's a really lengthy, lengthy process. Um, but it's an inductive process. We use inductive reasoning, meaning that we know what we know because we've observed it firsthand, or we've we've heard it directly from the source, and so, or it's been directly observed by somebody whom we speak to. So, you know, it's rigorous in that way. And um, you know, there are lots of complications that can arise, right? We have to be in the space, so we are kind of a part of the research. Sometimes that can get tricky with people who may not want us there, or maybe it's a private space. You know, let's say we wanted to do a project about um, the, the, the people's home life, the family home life in a neighborhood. You can't just knock on someone's door and walk into their living room and sit down for three or four hours and do that a few times a week for a year. You know, that, 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 that would take a, a significant amount of negotiation and, and building of rapport. So depending on the setting, there is that period of kind of finessing and rapport and, and building trust with people. And so it takes a long time. And for that reason, it's really not for everyone. Um, but, you know, for me, that's, it's the method that I enjoy You know, I enjoy asking those sorts of questions kind of how things happen and why they happen that necessitate this this sort of a method. So, um, you know, that's what ethnography is. And so, you know, our sources, we typically call them informants. And these are typically people who live in the neighborhood who we're interested in. Um, Sometimes people who you don't think are going to have pertinent information end up having really important information. And also, you know, we don't have hypotheses. So sometimes we don't know what we're going to find or really fully what we're interested in. We may just have general ideas and then we go and we hang out and we things emerge from our fieldwork and then that takes us in a new direction. So the method is can be very exciting that way and we have to kind of keep an open mind to what we're going to find. But that's essentially what ethnography is and you know it has a really rich tradition in sociology and um, I employed those methods for this for this book, and I tried to kind of take my cues uh, and my example from other, uh, you know, similar ethnographic works of of schools and other community spaces, and um, yeah. So so that's that. I think that's kind of the gist of what of what uh, ethnographic research is.
2: Thank you for that. And so, as far as your um, your research, could you talk to us about your research when it comes to like? Um, how did those teachers? Because you went into these two schools, right? Uh, Pinnacle High School and then Crossword, Crossroads High School, and so you were there for what months? Um, and really immersing immersing yourself within um, like the school setting. So could you talk to us about that? How did what reactions did you get? Were um, from the teachers, students, administration, parents, um, and then also like were they familiar with your research as well?
1: Yeah, it's a great question because. Um so much of this sort of research requires you to gain access to your field sites and you know not just for a day or for an hour or two, but sometimes for months or even years. you know, I spent you know the better part of two and a half years in and, in and out of these schools um, and and you know several times a week, sometimes you know, a few hours at a time. So um, so, so, so that process usually starts with identifying, a field site. In this case, I identified Pinnacle High School um, early on because it was this flagship public high school with you know, lots of really high achieving students. Uh, there just weren't that many uh, you know black or Latinx students at the school. And so for me, that was a space to try to understand those students' experiences living in a community like this, um, you know, a suburban community like this in, in, in suburban Southern California. Uh, and uh, going to a school like this. And so, um, you know, I sent emails to uh, to administrators telling them who I was, what I was interested in, you know, why I thought their school would be a good fit for my project. Um, uh, you know, I, I think I said some flattering things about their school, which were true, you know, just sort of talking about how their school was really well respected and had this you know this, uh, you know this uh, kind of academic profile that was that, that that was sort of the envy of other schools in the in the district and in the and in the region even, and uh, and I had this interesting situation where at that school, uh, I remember an assistant principal responding to me and saying, "Okay, you can come on campus for a couple hours a day, or you know for for a couple hours, um, uh, you know for a couple weeks." So, you know, that was going to be like four total hours of time on campus, you know, which might not have been enough for a term paper, let alone a dissertation and eventually a book. And um, eventually I was able to gain much more access once he agreed to send my email um, around to the teachers. And once a couple of teachers were on board, then this assistant principal was like, okay, if the teachers are on board and... Say it's okay for you to come hang out in classrooms. Then I'm okay with that. So once his teachers were on board with me coming and hanging out, then he was fine with it. So that process took, uh, you know, a few weeks. You kind of of of, of kind of waiting to hear back and back and forth and getting the necessary approvals from the university just to kind of do this sort of a project. Um, And 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 then you know for the first. Few weeks of kind of going and hanging out in classrooms, I was just in one classroom. And then those students would kind of get to know me. And, you know, I didn't do any interviews, because I wanted people to kind of get to know my face on campus. And then over time, I expanded the classrooms and the different uh, uh, kind of departments, because the school was you know, it had like a history department and a math department, so I would kind of expand to hang out in different departments in different classrooms. Always like with a referral from one teacher to another, so they would sort of know who I was. And by a certain point, you know, I was going to different events on campus, so people would recognize my face. Um, and then eventually, I uh, let teachers know that I wanted to do some interviews with them and with students, and so they announced that to their classrooms and. There were, you know, students were really interested and, and and wanted to help out, and I'm really thankful to them and, and to the teachers and parents for their, you know, for accepting me uh, onto the campuses. But that process took, you know, a few months of me just kind of hanging out and letting them get to know me first. Um, and also, you know, letting people know, hey, I'm not a reporter, you know, I'm not trying to write a hit piece or I don't have the story already written. I'm really just trying to understand you know, the school and kind of the academic culture and what goes on and what makes this school tick. Um, and soon, you know, I found out about this other high school crossroads and I found out about some of the disparities. And so then the project expanded to be kind of a comparative study between the two schools. And then there was a process of kind of access to that site that was very similar. So, um, So all of that took a few months. Uh, and then I, I use pseudonyms for all the names. So Pinnacle High School, Crossroads, Valley Valley View, my name for the suburb. All the names of of teachers, parents, students, administrators, st- other staff. Those are all pseudonyms, just to protect people's you know privacy and, and confidentiality.
2: For sure, thank you. And so, could you talk to us about Pinnacle High School then? Because you have this compar- um, comparative study, um, and so. What did you find? What were your findings from Pinnacle High School? And um, really paint the picture, because it sounds yeah. like this, you know, beautiful campus. And then also discuss, um, you mentioned the culture of success um, for Pinnacle as well. So could you talk to us about that?
1: Yeah. So, you know, Pinnacle was an interesting, you know, really interesting school, Um You know, a large public high school, uh, you know, ranked in the top 100 in the nation. Uh, A campus that's got these, like, beautifully manicured lawns and the trees are pruned perfectly and it's got different buildings and, uh, you know, for, 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 you know, the math, science, language, arts, um, you know, history, different, you know... Social sciences has kind of got different different buildings for different departments, uh, you know, theater, gym, auditorium, Olympic size swimming pool, soccer field, um, you know, a baseball field that 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 looks like you know a, a minor league team would play on it. I mean, just really, really, uh, you know, beautiful facilities, fifty five acres of facilities, tennis courts, all that stuff. So it looks like the type of suburban school that you'd see like on a TV show. You know, it really is that type of place, um, and there are, I think there are twenty nine honors and and AP classes offered. The graduation rate is um, um, almost one hundred percent. Over seventy percent of graduates go directly to four year colleges and universities. Over ninety six percent go on to some form of post secondary education. So it's a college going environment. Uh, it's a type of school where. Um, you know, success means having a 4.0 GPA, success means getting admitted to a, you know, a major research institution, you know, kind of a major respected nationally renowned, internationally renowned college. Um, and, and that's the, that's kind of the, the, the mantra. So what that means is it's a very competitive academic environment. Students are competing, it's stressful, it's cutthroat, uh, students are staying up late to study. Students are taking multiple honors and AP classes at the same time. Students are talking about where they got into college and, and where their parents want them to go. So it's this really kind of, kind of lofty and exacting academic culture. And the problem with that is that it does produce a lot of stress, um, but also, if 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 you're a student who doesn't fit that profile, it can be a really alienating place. Um, and I think you know, in some ways, it can be alienating, even for the students who achieve a lot, uh, you know uh, who kind of live up to that those definitions of achievement, because sometimes they don't feel like their achievements are really theirs. You know sometimes they feel like they're just doing this because their parents want them to, or they they don't like school. It's not fun but they're working really hard because they feel like they have to do it and so in some ways they're feeling alienation but I think even more of that alienation comes from students who maybe don't want to go to college or maybe aren't achieving those sorts of grades and maybe they don't they don't want to put that much time into it because they have other interests you know and 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 they want to enjoy other aspects of their of their youth um, you know they don't want to over you know do, ten things and and, and and be exhausted every day. And sometimes that puts them in a difficult um, position. So for example, there's a college sweatshirt day every spring, and I talk about this in the book, where students will wear apparel from the college that they've been accepted to. And this is a way for students to sort of show off their achievement. The school loves to take pictures, put it on their Facebook page, put it on Twitter, put it on other social media platforms to say, hey, our students graduate and go to this fancy school. Look, look how many students we have going to the Ivy League and other, you know, fancy places. And, uh, you know, f- for that can be, it can be sort of stressful for students because there's sort of this sort of comparison happening. Oh, you got into this school and I didn't and I'm going over here or whatever. So that can be uh, challenging. But also it can be especially challenging for students who aren't going to college or who maybe are going to the local community college. And so they don't want to participate in that. They don't want to wear that those, you know, sweatshirts or t-shirts or whatever. But inevitably on those days, if they don't wear something, then they'll be asked, are you going to college? Where are you going? Where did you get in? And so that can sort of create, um, you know, these divisions. Um, So this this sort of academic culture really divides the school uh, between students who are achieving at this very kind of exacting level of success and then everybody else who isn't. and, you know, another point I would mention is that achievement is very much racialized at this school, meaning that there are these racial stereotypes at the school about who's supposed to be successful on those terms and who really isn't expected to be. And so, um, you know, in, in many cases, the the, the Asian-American students who were mostly, um, you know, um, ethnic Koreans and, 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 and Chinese... They were considered the students who were who were responsible for the school's um, academic reputation, for the high grades and test scores and graduation rates. Um, you know there were different sayings that would go around on campus about this, different jokes and stereotypes. Um, and by the same token, the you know I found that the black and brown students. Weren't expected to achieve that, and the white students were sort of somewhere in between, and so uh, you know achievement was very racialized, which means that there meant that there were sort of these positive and negative racial stereotypes about different groups floating around, um, which I think you know affected the ways that teachers treated students, the ways that they talked to students, uh, the alienation that the black and brown students often felt on this campus. Um, and, and how and then you know they would try to kind of build community despite that. So it was really that type of a, of a school, you know, somewhat somewhat unique um, in some ways, but also you know these sort of notions of achievement and what counts as success, um, and how an institution kind of um, you know kind of uh, reifies or reproduces that inequality. Uh, the students who are left behind in that and alienated and, and sort of not helped. A pinnacle would just kind of cater to the students who are already achieving really in a really high way and not help students who are struggling more. Instead, just push them out to crossroads, treat crossroads like a dumping ground. You know, that was something that I found in this district and that really does happen in other districts across the country as well. So while this is a really extreme case, which uh, is kind of, one of why I wanted to write a book about it, it is something that it is widespread and happening in states and districts you know, across the country.
2: For sure. And then this is a, a very important book, I feel, because it's um, bringing things like this that's happening across the country kind of to light. And so um, Light Pinnacle, it has this um, s- success rate and um, these um, like this is what our ch- our students are high achieving. This is what we believe. And so tell us then what right. happens if. Um, when you have students who they feel are not achieving at the level that they want to achieve. And then um, that goes into, you start to discuss in your book, um, these alternative education programs or these continuation schools. And so um, could you talk to us about what, what are these, what are alternative education programs and continuation schools? Um, Yeah.
1: Yeah. So um, it's an important question. And I think, yeah, in terms of the kind of the pinnacle side of things, the problem with their sort of institutional success frame, kind of the way that they define success as an institution, um, you know, and that that definition is supported by a lot of students and teachers and parents. Um, the problem with that is that there's really only kind of one way to be successful at the school, and it requires you to, attain these certain academic achievements that are a very, very high bar. And the problem with that, as you mentioned, is if you don't reach that level of success, especially if you fall you know, some way short of that in some way, then you are alienated and marginalized even to the point where you can be pushed out to this separate school. And so continuation schools, also called alternative schools, are um, you know, in this case high schools that are part of the local public school district where students go if they've fallen off pace to graduate on time with their class. And usually this happens after students you know, fail two courses in the same term, fail the same course twice, or even if their GPA dips below 2.0. In some, in some districts that can trigger a referral to, to be transferred to an alternative school. Um, These are typically not disciplinary schools, so these are not schools where students go if they, uh, uh, you know, uh, commit, you know, engage in illicit activity or commit a crime or or something like that. Usually there are other facilities or other schools, um, you know, where where students are sent if they commit those sorts of infractions, Uh, but nevertheless... Despite the fact that schools like Crossroads are not disciplinary schools, they often have features that, um, you know, are very sort of carceral. You know, they're sort of prison-like. So, for example, at Crossroads, uh, there are there's a, this like eight-foot metal fence that runs around the perimeter of the school, and that's not necessarily noteworthy. You know, a lot of schools have fences around them, but it's noteworthy for Crossroads uh, because it's the only school in this district that has a fence like this. All the other high schools are just kind of wide open, grassy campuses. Crossroads has a lot of asphalt. It's got a fence around it. It's got these floodlights on poles for added surveillance, Um, you know, like these big spotlights that they shine down on the courtyard. Uh, It's got a lot of asphalt. It's got these buildings with these sort of rectangular buildings with really low ceilings that look like trailers. So it's a very kind of stark, austere campus. They don't prune the grass outside, so it's kind of growing wildly. The bushes, the hedges in front are kind of dead or dying. Um, There's not that sort of even care and investment in the property that you see at Pinnacle. And what was striking about this for me is that the schools are only about a half a mile apart and they're in the same suburb. It's not as if one of them is on the other side of the tracks. one of them is in this kind of neighborhood and the other one's in this kind of neighborhood they're not they're both in very similar you know kind of expensive uh you know affluent neighborhoods uh and yet they're just very very different very very different spaces um so so that's the that's the process um transfer from pinnacle to crossroads is voluntary but what I found was that administrators, teachers, counselors would put considerable pressure on students and families to get them to acquiesce to the transfer. So they would say things like, well, you'll fail if you stay at Pinnacle. Or they'll say things, and, and they would actually sometimes pressure them before they had kind of met that threshold. There was a sort of threshold of, of credit deficiency, it's what they called it, that a student had to reach. And as I said, usually, you know, that was below a 2.0, or you fail a class or two. But they would sometimes pressure students who hadn't even reached that threshold. Um, and, and many times, parents and students would, would not want to transfer because they, would, they knew the reputation of Crossroads. Or they would hear stereotypes and rumors about the school. Everybody's pregnant there. There's gangs. Uh, there's fights. There's smoke, smoke-filled bathrooms. Virtually none of that was true but those were the stereotypes out there in the community and those would kind of you know those were just in the air at Pinnacle or Valley View High School or any of the other high schools around in the district and so students would know about this and they would be really sometimes even distraught when when they found out that they were being um, you know kind of pushed to that to that school so um, and, and so typically it was the parents who had more resources who were able to resist and kind of push back and avoid the transfer. So they would put students in private tutoring, or they would pull a student out and put them in private school. Um, And, you know, those are expensive options, and they're not available to everybody. And so that was where sort of the socioeconomic disparity came in. I think roughly 11% of students at Pinnacle were on, you know, qualified for free, reduced-price lunch. Uh, Just over 50% of Crossroads students did. So there's, you know, uh, uh, you sort of had more of those socioeconomically disadvantaged students at at Pinnacle or at Crossroads uh, by roughly a factor of five, and in part that was because there were many more, you know, many more of those families, you know, just weren't able to resist effectively and push back against the pressure. So, um, so that's that's the that's the sort of dynamic that that, that happened that happened there. Um, and, you know, alternative education programs, sometimes, you know, to be fair, sometimes they work really well. There were students at Crossroads who, you know, went there. And, you know, the goal is to be able to recover credits to kind of get back on track and then transfer back to your con- comprehensive high school. So you go to Crossroads for a year or maybe two and then you transfer back and graduate from Pinnacle. This happened sometimes, but uh, and there were some students who might have dropped out had they not had Crossroads. However, only 70 I found that only seven during my field work, only 17% of eligible students transferred back from crossroads to pinnacle. So often once students went to crossroads, they typically would remain there. And that was because you know there was Uh, there was very little homework the day school day was short so students would get out at noon and have nothing to do you know crossroads had no sports no clubs no after school program no pta no library so it was really just show up do your packets and leave and a lot of students um, there was more of a culture of academic apathy as i call it in the book at that school that would kind of suck students in so students would arrive there be, maybe be really motivated to leave, but then kind of get sucked into to this, to this new reality. Um, so that was really the dynamic, and that's sort of part of that apartheid, part of that segregation, especially when we consider the racial disparity you know, between, the, between the two schools as well. Um, and I think in, in general, the last thing I would say about this is that continuation schools are um, you know, in place at districts across the country. Um, you know, there are over 500,000 students in, in, who were enrolled in continuation schools nationally at any, at any given time, roughly 90,000 of them in California alone. Um, kind of during the No Child Left Behind era, the number of students in continuation schools rose precipitously because uh, it was a way for some of these public high schools to shirk accountability uh, for educating all students and just pass them off to these continuation schools, and so you know, um, I, I as I write it out in the book, I think this is kind of a, a policy problem, and I have some ways of you know of some solutions to, to 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 combat that. But that's the general gist of continuation schools and what they're all about and how they operate a little bit in this particular district
2: for sure thank you and then i know you spoke um about some of these differences but could you um tell us about the racial demographics um of crossroads yeah. high schools and um also like this i guess culture of failure for lack of oh. betterers um in comparison to pinnacle which had this uh, culture of like achievement instead yeah
1: yeah so in terms of the racial disparity, and I think it's good to also think about this in the context of Valley View. So, um, you know, Valley View is like a destination city. It's a city that people want to move to because it's got, you know, sunny weather year round and uh, the school, the public schools are well rated and the crime rate is low and it's kind of got all of those things. Um, and so it's it's a destination city for East Asian immigrants. Um uh, you know, roughly 50% of Valley View residents um, are Asian American, uh, and it's no different at Pinnacle. And um, and so roughly 50, I think it's about 52% of the Pinnacle high school student body identifies as, as Asian American. The majority of those um, are, are ethnic Koreans or Chinese. And um, and and then and then the you know there there are um, you know, roughly forty percent of the uh, of those of the student body there are just under are are white students and then the remaining roughly ten percent are black and Latinx students and you know those are similar percentages to Valley View overall um, but the disparity really comes into play when we look at those numbers at Crossroads. Um, so at, at at crossroads, roughly half of the student body identifies as black or brown. Um, and so you know those students are overrepresented at crossroads by roughly a factor of five. and um, uh, you know Asian American students are underrepresented uh, at crossroads by roughly a factor of five. so roughly one fifth the percentage of Asian American students at Crossroads, as are at as are in Valley View as a whole, and uh, at Pinnacle, and so that means that there's something about the um, uh, th- there's sort of something about this continuation school alternative education process that is placing more Black and Brown students at risk. That is sort of disadvantaging them. There's something about the sort of the way in which the district is dealing with students who are struggling. Um, You know, academically, that is disadvantaging black and brown students, Uh, because sometimes those students are struggling academically, not because they aren't strong students, but often I found it was because something was happening in their life. You know, there was an illness in the family or they missed time for some reason, or even just they transferred from a different district, maybe even out of state and not all their credits transferred. So they had to go to Crossroads to get caught up with their peers at their comprehensive high school before they could actually start there. So sometimes, so it wasn't always the case that it was the students who were flunking out who got sent to Crossroads. Oftentimes it was even the opposite of that. Um, in terms of the culture at the two schools, um, so there's this sort of culture of what I call academic apathy that sets in at Crossroads because... It, it, you know it's a concentration of students who are behind and so what that means is there's not the same um, you know kind of the, the, the you know and if, you grad, even if you graduate from that school you're not eligible to go to a four-year college because it doesn't have all of the uh, courses that are required to get admission to those colleges so students opportunities are the, the military working a low-wage job or going to a community college And those can all be fine options, Um, although in this district, those aren't really fine options. Those are sort of ridiculed and stereotyped and looked down upon as sort of, you know, what happened or, you know, what's wrong with you? So that was part of the problem. Um, But, uh, you know, a lot of students would go to Crossroads and start out working hard, but they'll have more opportunities at a school like that to, you know, get involved with peers who aren't making good decisions, who aren't really focused on their education, who um, kind of lose interest because it's not interesting. It's not challenging. There's not a lot of programming. There's not a lot of, as I said, there's no library. There's no extracurriculars. There's no sports. There's just not that same kind of school feel that, that, that students really, really need. Um, and it, students lose motivation in that environment. You know, a lot of times the teachers don't really, you know, the, the teachers aren't aren't as into it because they didn't want to get a job at a school like that. Um, there's sometimes the teachers are looking for a way out. They're looking to go to a different school. They're looking to move. So there's a lot of teacher turnover there, um, and it's not a good environment for students who who are interested in, in maybe pursuing college. The students who are successful in that are typically the ones who kind of put blinders on and block out the noise and, and really focus, you know, do do homework through lunch period, uh, you know, work on recovering credits that way. Um, but that can be a real challenge. There's a lot of distractions. I found, um, you know, and and a lot of times at Crossroads, teachers' job was very different. You know, at Pinnacle, teachers had the freedom to teach. You know, they could teach whatever they wanted. The students were quiet. You know, there were very minimal disruptions. If there were disruptions, other other peers would 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 kind of get their classmate in line. And it just moved smoothly. And teachers could really dig into material and, and, and really do the things they wanted, introduce new things, go beyond the curriculum in fun interesting ways. At Crossroads, that didn't happen. Teachers typically had the job of trying to keep students on task, of trying to manage the classroom, which meant that they didn't really get the freedom to teach. I remember one student telling, telling a student at Crossroads, one teacher telling a student at Crossroads, you know, you know, please be quiet. At least, at least, make me feel like I'm a teacher. Because oftentimes they didn't. They felt like they were just managing the classroom. And usually, it would only, you know, it would only be a handful of students, maybe two or three out of the fifteen in the class. But those two or three were able to really derail things and distract it for other students there who really wanted to 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 to, to make up credits. So it was just a very very different environment. And I think that environment is created by the policies in the district that say that concentrating these students in one school is a good idea uh, I don't think it is and you know I think there's more that the comprehensive high schools you know can do instead of having these alternative spaces that I mean, many times are just not the best environment for students um, to, to even to meet the objectives that the alternative uh, school sets out to do which is to get students back on track
2: Thank you. So what would you suggest after conducting all of this research? What do you think would be some of the best uh, ways or practices to combat these issues of inequality and segregation found in our schools?
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, this this case is a little bit different than some of the other literature. You know, most of the segregation that we see in public schools is the direct product of neighborhood segregation. You know, neighborhood segregation, uh, you know, in the research and the sort of real world, ex- real world experience tells us very clearly that residential segregation is the primary driver, and it's not even close, of school segregation. Um, that's, for instance, why a lot of times school choice programs like we see in New York City don't really do much to integrate our schools in any meaningful way or what we've seen is when schools are relatively integrated, when schools are racially diverse, often they are segregated within. So there'll be what we call tracking, where certain students are in you know, more advanced honors and advanced, uh, uh, advanced placement and honors classes, and then other students are in kind of the regular courses or even remedial courses, and that's racialized as well. So we tend to see more white and Asian students in honors and AP courses, and we tend to see more black and brown students in the regular and in the remedial courses. Um, you know, with some, with some exceptions, uh, sometimes for English language learners, but for the most part, those are the racial disparities and patterns that, that we see. And so, um, and so even in, in, in districts that are relatively diverse, where we see racial integration of schools, we often don't see racial integration of classrooms nearly at that, at that level. Um, this case is a bit different in the in the sense that Valley View ha, doesn't have a whole lot of, of residential segregation. It's a pretty well integrated suburb residentially. Um, the segregation here happens within schools in the form of tracking, which is widespread in this district. But the process that I describe in the book is a process of um, a more extreme process of tracking that's uh, between schools. So it's not just having some students in honors and some in, you know, college prep and some in remedial courses on sort of a, sort of a a multi-tiered system, but it's pushing students to a completely separate and unequal school, right? That's the kind of, that's the segregation part. That's the apartheid part. You know, that's the kind of separate, um, separate and unequal education that um, uh, that you know that is supposed to be unconstitutional in our in our country and so um, and so I think that schools like pinnacle that have the space have the resources um, should be responsible for helping their students who fall behind get back on track you know the reality is in places like Valley view what we see is what I call the criminalization of failure. You have students who maybe fail a class and then they get pushed into a place like Crossroads that is very punitive, that's sort of criminalizing their academic struggle. And I think that's wrong. I think that's the wrong approach. I think that students can do, that the schools can do better by students. I think they owe students more than that. I think they have a responsibility especially as public schools to educate all students not to sort of abandon them and get up on and give up on them um and you know i think that's ultimately what's what's happening far too often i don't think that it's malicious i don't think that it's i don't think that it's intentional i don't think that they're trying to punish students i think that the vast vast majority of educators whether it's in valley view or other places around the country are, really care about students and they really want to do the right thing. That doesn't mean that it's good policy. You know, that doesn't mean that it's good practice. And I think that they, the students would be better served if they were able to remain at a place like Pinnacle, recover credits there, not be socially isolated from their friends, not be isolated from all the extracurricular enriching activities that come at a comprehensive high school uh, like a Pinnacle. Because the way that it's set up now the policies and practices actually work against the stated mission. And I actually remember a student telling me it's a contradiction. You know, they want us to get back on track, and they send us to a place like Crossroads where there's, like, more distractions. And so we can't get back on track over here. And so I think that, you know, that's the fix. Uh, I think there's ways to make it work, um, uh, you know, to kind of give students that, that option. But I think, you know, having the option of Crossroads, it gives students like Pinnacle an easy way out. You know, gives them a place where they can just send students sometimes when they haven't even met their stated threshold to, to, to recommend that they be sent. And I, and I don't think that that's, um, you know, kind of the best approach in this case.
2: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Drake, uh, for discussing your book. It's a wonderful book, a wonderful read. Um, so I guess I have one last question for you. What are you working on next?
1: Well, um, you know, I'm trying to kind of you know get that stuff going. You know, it kind of feels like, yeah, uh, kind of feels like I'm trying to like turn a cruise ship or something. You know, it's I've been kind of on this this same path for the last few years for sure. Um, but you know, my interests as a sociologist are very much in race, ethnicity, segregation of neighborhoods and schools, uh, um, uh, you know, educational uh, inequality, uh, immigration, and kind of the Intersection of all those different things, and so I have a couple of different projects that I'm working on right now. One is um, uh, one is an ethnography of of, of of homeless students and families, students and families experiencing homelessness in in in, in New York State, um, kind of in the Syracuse, New York area, and also in in New York City. Um, uh, you know, and, and the, 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 uh, the sort of, uh, the struggle, the highs and lows of that experience and how, you know, we might be able to, to more, uh, effectively help, help those families. Um, now this is, this has gotten somewhat worse over the, over the course of the, of the pandemic. Um, but in, you know, in most cities around the country, uh, you know, uh, Roughly ten percent of public school students experience homelessness for at least some portion of a, of a typical school year. I know that's a statistic that really shocked me a few years ago and, and made me want to want to investigate and, and, and do more and do more to, to help, especially because oftentimes homelessness in, in, in children is often kind of out of sight out of mind. You know it's not something that we tend to think about we tend to think about street homelessness kind of adult street homelessness tends to be like what's in the news and 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 all of those sorts of things so that's one particular uh, um, study that i have and, or, and that i'm that i'm um, you know in the early stages of obviously as you might imagine you know being homeless and being a, a young person being a student is very detrimental to your kind of physical health, mental health, and your academic uh, uh, opportunities and future. So that's an area I think of need that sociology as a discipline has not addressed enough. Uh, and the other is an ethnographic uh, study looking at uh, the refugee student population uh, in in Central New York. Syracuse, New York, is a is a refugee hub. Uh, a lot of refugees from um, you know from the Middle East, from 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 Africa um uh from uh from southeast asia as well and uh you know they 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 have they have their own sort of challenges trying to adapt to the united states trying to adapt to our kind of unique fascination with racism and with race and with racial identity they're trying to kind of figure out where they fit within that um, and also at the same time, they're trying to go to school and they're trying to understand. They're often the cultural brokers for their for their families uh, at a very young age as they're trying to move through through the system. So, trying to understand some of their experiences and, and ultimately how I can how I can be uh, how I can be helpful in, in sort of drawing attention, uh, you know, to these to these issues. So those are the two, um, you know, kind of projects that I that I'm working on right now. Working with a few after-school programs here in the in the city that work with um, students who are uh, precariously housed, they're facing food insecurity, or you know, uh, who, or, or who are uh, refugees. So um, yeah, those are that's kind of the, where I'm where I'm uh, focusing my efforts on probably for the next next few years, and um, you know, we'll kind of see see where that heads.
2: Wow, that's really important work that you're doing. Um, That's amazing, along with this book. And I'm looking forward to all of your upcoming works and um, research that you're working on. Um, And thank you again, Dr. Shondrake, for um, speaking with me today.
1: Thank you.